So, here we go. Welcome that was, to- we call that a, we call that a slow start. <laughs> okay, so welcome to the new Blind Spot podcast. I'm Isabella Kaminska, and I am joined and- by my new co-host. Well, not Joshua Unseth, also known as John Seth. Indeed. So perhaps we do a quick introduction. How, who are we and how did we come together and why should people listen to this podcast, Josh? I don't know about the last question, but uh, I am Joshua. Uh, I'm I'm a Bitcoiner, old time Bitcoiner known as John Seth. I used to run a giant Bitcoin podcast, the most popular in the space. And I think the most uh, rationally centric, sort of centered podcast in the space, uh, focusing on finance and Bitcoin. And uh, that was pretty early, about 2014, I think is when it's 2015, when we started. We did that for a few years. And we were the first to do a number of cool things, such as interviewing Eugene Fama, the creator of Efficient Market Hypothesis, and uh, which I'm sure- Bit of a hero of yours. Of the listeners. A hero? I don't have heroes other than Tom Wolf. When you said (laughs) you had one of the most, what did you call it? One of the biggest uh, Bitcoin podcasts. I thought you were going to say Bitcoin pyramids, but that's that. Well, we also had a large pyramid as part of Bitcoin Uncensored. Yes. Uh, Well, what happened with the the, uh, Eugene Fama interview is that Isabella heard it. And she didn't like it. She told us we were very disrespectful to him. So we told her to come on so we could be disrespectful to her. And she did. And we've been friends ever since. Exactly. And I think <laughs> the point here is that I come from the uh, conventional mainstream media. And Josh, you're kind of from the, from the, from the fringes, one might say. Um, and what I found was that talking to you guys um really helped my understanding of where you were coming from and i think vice versa i think that was the interesting thing rather than so often in in this day and age people get very emotional online but actually when you go and speak to each other um you can find some common ground and the purpose of this this podcast i think is that we can approach lots of different topics but from two different perspectives and hopefully um meet some middle ground and provide some entertaining insight at the same time well, so, I, I already object i already object to being called fringy <laughs> would a fringy guy wear this would a fringe well ex- it's, it's so it's so, it's so it's nice. so conservative that it's almost fringe <laughs> if you're going for the tucker carlson look there definitely uh-huh yeah oh good no not him Maybe. Who else? Jim Rogers is also a great. I touched um, Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf is my hero. He's the only person I will uh, allow you to classify as my hero. Tom who, Wolf. Who is? I am. I'm being ignorant. Who is Tom Wolf? Really? Yes. The author. Of, Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, Bonfire of the Fan. Yeah, I, I, I know it, but I have not read it. I'm afraid to oh, say. But it's oh, a good, yeah. good. I know the story. It's good. So, w- our inaugural podcast and what we what we wanted to talk about of course was the big story last two two weeks i guess now the unraveling of the lunar terror i guess partnership of of sta- non-stability that was uh the terra stablecoin collapse two weeks well, ago i suppose now. we should talk about stable coins in general huh that's right yeah so, I mean, like Terra Luna is really interesting. I mean, like, I don't know how big it got, but I think it might have been as large as $80 billion. Mm-hmm. And it collapsed over like the last two weeks. It's crazy. That is. And um... no one's heard of it. It's bigger than like most uh, uh, most Ponzi schemes that anyone's ever heard of. And yet you probably never have heard of this unless you're like deep in crypto. Uh, I don't, when I don't did know you how first much hear about it? Terra Josh? Luna? Yeah. I watched it happen. <laughs> but when when did you hear about it? Like, when did you know of Terra? Well, I mean, all of, if you're in the ecosystem, you know of Terra because like Terra Luna is tied deeply into the DeFi section of uh, the Bitcoin and crypto economy. Um, and people like me don't really participate in DeFi, but we do watch it. I, I've always kind of viewed myself as, I don't know if you know, a John Madden uh, of crypto. Do you know John Madden? Is that? No, well, did he make? You know, shoes? like an announcer. He didn't. Well, that would be Steve Madden, I think, right? John. Well, you're in the UK, so who's who's a an announcer that's famous for soccer? 
Oh, oh you, I'm the wrong person to, to ask. Probably Gary Lineker. Gary Lineker. I'm the Gary Lineker of crypto. So I just kind of <laughs> watch the space and announce what's happening. Like, ah, Terra Luna. And then I'm like, oh, Gary Neville. That's Gary Neville? Neville? Gary, Neville. Gary, 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 Gary Lineker. Well, he's he says Gary he Neville. Also crisps, but that's another that? story. He, he also yeah, crisps. Yeah. I'm crisp selling uh, Gary Neveker. Lineker. Uh, of Lineker. <laughs> anyway, so what is the big takeaway from the collapse of uh, Terra? Um, Francis and I stupid. partnered up and did a big Francis Coppola, that is, who is yeah. the no coiner extraordinaire who you, who, uh, I guess, has some respect in the Bitcoiner community as well. I think she, her critiques are um, seen in many respects as insightful. Um, so we partnered up on a on an analysis of what was going on, and I think our main shtick was that you know this is very much a question of what has happened before will happen again. The mechanics of Terra Luna, which are really interesting for those who don't know, the um, Luna is a sort of free floating, well, I guess conventional cryptocurrency whose value goes up and down with with demand and it's sort of the source of equity i would say in stabilizing the stable coin that is terror which is theoretically backed by a algorithm but i would say it's backed by an arbitrage um between luna and terror and the idea really was that um thanks to this arbitrage that essentially always underprices or overprices um, based on market demand or supply, um, it can maintain sort of a stability based on collateralizing Luna, uh, sorry, Terra with the Luna, right? And, and effectively the two balance each other off. But the problem in the equation came about when I guess they overlooked the fact that Luna can also go to zero. Um, I've likened it to sort of an ETF that tracks the dollar. That is a you know, if, if BlackRock issued a ETF that was um, tracking the dollar, but which was collateralized with BlackRock shares, that's kind of how I see uh, what was happening with Terra Luna. But with BlackRock shares going to zero and then the whole thing unraveling. Um, it's so somewhat much, quickly. so much dumber than that, though. Because there's no there's no productive capacity, right? So like if you have BlackRock shares, at least like BlackRock can back up back back up the value of their shares with production. Whereas you know in crypto it's a little different because crypto is the thing itself, right? It's like having gold or having you know I mean I have a good friend uh, uh, who goes by Bitcoin Tina, whom I think you hate. I don't think you like Bitcoin. Tina. No, I don't hate. I don't hate anyone, Josh. I don't. I don't hate. Hate him. But he always, he always says, he always, he always says, 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 then you can do nothing. You can do nothing about the fact that it can go to zero because there's no reason for it not to go to zero, other than I don't know the community. So a lot of this stuff is designed in such a way as as to allow children to play in the mud of the Federal Reserve. They want to pretend as though they are themselves the Fed. So they create this very not complex sort of uh, type of levering game where they pretend like they're selling bonds and uh create and printing dollars and then it goes all awry and they find out that the fed has a really hard job <laughs> yeah it, it is harder than like price stability is i'll just really put hard. it i'll just put it in math we'll make the math do it like it, this this is the epitome of libertarian like this idea of free market money where the money itself governs itself and this, the, the, the problem with crypto, there's a number of problems, but one of the big problems is that the oracle of things like pricing and whatnot has to come from outside of the network. It's not something that the network can impute or derive. So the, the pricing at an exchange has to come from outside of the network. And the other thing is that the volume of these cryptos is so small 
that they're extremely vulnerable to attacks, not just like a 51% attack, which is is pretty rare, but, you know, speculative attacks put on by, uh, you know, hedge funds or uh, George well, that, Soros. That's actually one of the really to... interesting things because, like, having followed traditional finance for so long, these attacks, we just call them, you know, they're, they're just exploitation of an open arbitrage. So it's seen as a... In, in conventional TradFi, <laughs> it's seen well, as a, a, the closure of an, an inefficiency in the market. It's not an attack. Whereas I found it quite interesting that the nomenclature when discussing the Terra Luna um, situation was like, oh, it was an attack, like a hacker type attack. When, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, by that definition, Soros was a, a hacker. Um, so I well, find he was that he was definitely an attacker of the of the pound. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I I disagree in so far as it is an attack, right? It's just it's just like everything's an attack. If you if you look at markets, that's what markets are. You know, getting their price from there, they are literally two people fighting about. Uh, it's 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 a brother and brother arguing about uh, the price of what you know what they think the price should be. That's what volatility is, right? Right, and, right. No, I totally agree, but, but I think that occasionally like, that's presents an arbitrage opportunity right but i think yeah. i guess the perception was like in the early days of this um unraveling there was like what happened and there was a lot of the discussion was focused on the around the idea that it might have been some sort of hack um but it wasn't a hack it was just the closure of a arbitrage and, and actually yeah. from what i understand one of the one of the main arbitrage opportunities was the fact that luna or Ter terraform Terraform Labs um, acquired this Bitcoin to collateralize Huge amounts. the system in March. And in, a, in an irony of ironies, that sent a signal to the market that they don't trust the algorithm at all. And that created an opportunity to exploit a new um, sort of price stroke, you know, information asymmetry that suddenly entered into the fray. Even though the purpose of collateralizing it was supposed to be to make it stronger. But it may have we're been all, its undoing. I mean, we're all kids here, and I think I think what's funny is when tr uh, when retail complains about getting wrecked by tradfi, and uh, these are all these are all words uh, we millennials use. Wrecked is is not what you think it. It's not spelled W R E C K E D for all you old people watching. It's spelled R E K T. Wrecked. It's a different kind of wrecked. It's internet wrecked. Uh, so uh, they were wrecked. They were wrecked by tradfi, and and the reason is because. You know, TradFi is filled with people that literally do this for a living. And retail has recently learned, I, I don't know, these Wall Street bet attacks uh, that are really cute and uh, maybe a little bit more nuanced than Wall Street bets even knows, but that they pull off, um, at least in some capacity, maybe maybe just through, you know, crowd sourcing everybody jumping into one thing at once. You know, maybe that's maybe that's the value of the gamer or the GameStop stuff. But in this case, retail comes in, TradFi uh, poops on them, and then they the retail looks at TradFi and goes, they're scammers, they're mean. And I'm just like, what, you, what game do you think you're playing? It's crazy. This is, I mean, it's really interesting. I, like, I think that what happens here often is that retail just proves time and again not that they shouldn't exist i'm not i'm not for that but that uh that you ought the best move for most people uh because we are simply not as sophisticated as somebody who's trading on milliseconds of time you know um who's, who's spent millions of dollars being right next to the buildings in new york which you know isn't so much a thing anymore but was early on in the 2000s we are not as sophisticated as those people we don't have the same tools as they have we don't have the same scale as retail so there's no reason that we should play the same game and uh for that reason the etf was invented and bitcoin I, well i don't know about the latter but i, I see i and, see your and logic. Bitcoin. And, <laughs> yeah so i think we should do some disclosure um obviously um you are a pro Bitcoin voice. Um, oh yes, very pro Bitcoin are, voice. We have to disclose that that is, you know, you are long Bitcoin. I, I presume I am long Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, long, so I, long Bitcoin. 
I um I was a no coiner until March 2020. I should disclose, right? And then I had I'm still very much committed to the idea that journalists shouldn't really um they should be neutral as much as possible. But I did have a panic attack in March 2020 and I bought some Bitcoin, but it was only five hundred dollars worth. And at least to my credit, I picked the perfect timing because it was the market low. Um, that's now worth about $2,000. So that's my disclosure, but it's, it's my, my epiphany, as I think you would say, um, Josh, that's my turnaround position is that, um, so I'm still very skeptical of the entire crypto space. I still am of the opinion that so much of it is a solution looking for a problem. But I think March, 2020 made me realize that there is something in Bitcoin where I've likened it to sort of the right to bear arms. It's best, it's, it is a useful deterrent in the sense that if, if all hell, you know, unleashes itself upon society, um, it's good to know that there were some people <laughs> backing this, you know, investing in this system that you can potentially use in the worst case scenario. And as a hedge, as an ultimate hedge, it's useful, but it's mostly useful in um, keeping central banks honest. The fact that Bitcoin exists should, in theory, keep central banks like aligned to their objectives. Um, so in the sense of it's best, it's best when it's not utilized because it's actually still, I still think it's relatively inefficient as a payments mechanism. But in a worst case scenario, suddenly it makes sense. So that's our disclosures done. I think um, is Isabella's disclosure is all about how wrong she is. So, I mean, I was or how how wrong I am no, even okay. today. I, I I think I think that you're actually largely correct. I although I like Bitcoin more than you, and I do think that Bitcoin has a lot of other uh, features. A number of years ago, I was talking to somebody at the uh, I think it was the GAO. Uh, I had the G8. Just, <laughs> no, not the, yeah, so when I was at the G8, uh, I was, my name is President Biden. Uh, I was GAO, the Government Accountability uh, Office in the United States. And uh, they were talking to me about, we just had a small discussion. They, they were asking questions. I think it was ex very exploratory. I don't think there was any anything other than they were just asked to explore the question. Um, but they were asking what would happen if they didn't allow remittance to have bank accounts, if that were something that was disallowed. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a really interesting question because it doesn't matter at all anymore. All that will happen is that you will lose the ability to uh, regulate and watch your money move. And that's what Bitcoin allows is that it has its free money. It, uh, it lets you move it uh, without anyone telling you how or what to do with it. It's very, very but how, simple. How do you square that with so many of the intermediaries basically adopting all the tradfi regulatory environment standard. they're dumber than me <laughs> what they're dumber than me in what sense? it's very obvious it's very obvious that this oh i'm, I'm kidding uh they, I, I i i heard DeFi, even though i know you said tradfi i guess uh i, I just <laughs> yes. expected you to ask why they're all adopting the DeFi. The, the because bitcoin is because traditional finance spent um 300 years 400 years developing uh, all sorts of ways to manage and deal with assets and money. And they're really good. And they're not like, like I, here's the mistake that TradFi makes, I think is in believing that um, there is any distinction between what they do and everything that's done in places like Bitcoin. There is no, there is no difference. Bitcoin is finance and tr all the TradFi stuff that you can layer over banks also works in Bitcoin. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of learning that's going to have to happen with regard to something that we think is probably going to be somewhat deflationary. And there's a lot of learning. I, I think there's a lot of things that Bitcoin can do that dollars simply never could. Like, I think there are innovations that we will find that we didn't know the government being in the way was, was preventing. But I think that those are few and far between. And for the most part, bankers figured out banking Years and years, even under the Rothschilds, like a long, long time ago, who control all things in this world and uh... 
Which way are you going with I just, this? I just, I just finished Neil Ferguson's History of the Rothschilds, by the way. Phenomenal book if you haven't read it. it he's great. He's, I, do, I do enjoy um, his books. He's a fantastic historian. And I think quite – well, I don't know if pro-Bitcoin is the way to put it, but I think he's very open-minded to, um, to Bitcoin. But the um, – you know, I guess my my issue there is that for Bitcoin to fulfill its um, mandate as a sort of a product that liberates people and allows for cross-border sort of fluidity, etc., then you've got to, you know, the fact that so much of the industry has just capitulated and adopted the TradFi regulatory environment, which I understand why they've done it because they wouldn't be able to operate otherwise. Doesn't that just prove that, like TradFi, when it, you know, at the end of the day, that is always going to be um, the, you know, that will always, Bitcoin will always have to be beholden to the TradFi rules. So you're not really breaking the system, you're just being subsumed by it. There's no such thing as TradFi, there's only Fi. That, that that that's my like all yeah, all fi all all finance is finance like this idea that banks are somehow like b banks have one goal in mind and but then what what how does bitcoin differentiate itself in a in in the fi world if it also has to be compliant with all the regulations what's its what's its unique well, it, it, it's optionally compliant it doesn't have to be compliant with all the regulations at all like it doesn't have to be at all um, I You're, can send money. So you would argue, therefore, that um, and do stop me if I'm putting words in, in in your mouth. But so you would say that it's kind of compliant at the moment because it pays to be compliant, and everyone's well, happy. It's, it, like, look, banks, 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 it could continue on without being compliant. Right, B banks are a little bit like Christians. Uh, maybe they, <laughs> like, like in in if you think about like someone who's highly devoted to God, they're not really they're not really devoted to their state. Right. They, they exist outside of their state. Uh, they might give you a list of things that are important. It might be God, family, uh, country, you know, something like that. And if country goes away, it's like, well, I guess I still have God and family. You know, um, banks are the same way. People think that banks are loyal to the government, but they're not. They're loyal to the assets they hold in their vaults. Uh, and they're all they will exist in and out of governments. They don't care. The Medici's didn't care where they were. They liked they liked Italy because it provided some stability, but then they, you know, had to move. So they were state agnostic. Uh, and I guess like... Banks have always been state agnostic. There's no loyalty. Mm -hmm. There's no loyalty to the state. But right now what's happened in, in the world is that the state has said like, you know what, like actually there is kind of a lot of benefit to the unholy alliance between banks and government. And so it's actually very profitable for banks to be, uh, to be, in cahoots with government, but like, it's also good for us for the most part. But the point is that like finance is something that's developed out of the banking system and out of uh, the needs of the banking system in the way that, I don't know, inventory management algorithms have developed out of three PLs and like holding, uh, you know, Amazon, you know, it's not like Amazon is uh, D I don't know, de-delivery, to, to like decentralized delivery, or that's that's somehow different from like regular, you know, de-inventory management. It's just inventory management. And what they've done is they've achieved more scale than anyone else has. So there's new things that they learn and new processes that they develop in the same way that like, that's exactly how TradFi and DeFi are. There's no such thing as DeFi. DeFi is a stupid word. And TradFi <laughs> Decentralized is- Decentralized finance for those who do not know. Yeah, I mean, it's just a way. It's just a way for young people to call old people boomers without saying. No, no, I, I think that that is so true about the uh, vocabulary, and a lot of crypto is just recreating new work. Like it's creating new new terms for old concepts. But what's your take then on like in in the wake of the Terra Luna collapse? What's your take on what the regulators should be doing with respect to? Um, that area because obviously now there's a lot of demand for regulation because all these people lost their money and do you are, are you of i mean i presume you're going to argue that they knew they we don't we shouldn't be on the hook to to bail out anybody in this in this sort no. of setup no obvious i mean we're, we're like this is this is people who invested in a ponzi scheme 
Uh, they called it an algorithmic stablecoin. It wasn't. It was a Ponzi scheme. Uh, now with crypto, you have a bunch of new words that you can use to describe an alg- or a Ponzi scheme that you know is not a Ponzi scheme, and it's confusing to regulators because they're dumb. They're the lowest common denominator of people in the U.S., so they're not going to have any idea that like you know yeah I mean but like also there's a little bit of corruption here in a really problematic sense in that in the United States um, the regulators will go into places and this is very common and they will find the individuals who commit incredible crimes, incredible financial crimes, because they'll just, they want the money instead and they'll let them keep the millions that they built. So like this creates a weird incentive in the United States. The difference with the difference is that Terra Luna was, you know, started by, uh, I believe a Korean. I don't think that he's even American. So like, I don't know that there's much that we can do in the U S to regulate against Terra Luna. The fact that it's on a blockchain allows people to like, you know, get a VPN and, you know, move money into, uh, in, into wherever they can find it. Um, and it was viewed as very legitimate. And that this is the part that gets me. Terra Luna was viewed as very legitimate by a number of actors in the space that are on uh, on the U.S. side. And I don't know exactly. I wasn't I wasn't interested in buying it. So I don't know where you could have purchased it. Maybe Coinbase, but there's other places online. But there was a bunch of investors like Mike Novogratz and such who uh, who were pushing Terra Luna. And uh, I think at your end of the pond, it was um, what's his name? Raul Paul. Raul Paul and his group were like very much into Terra Luna. Perhaps, and I don't know. Yes, I think that, that there is a controversy about that. Yes, there is. Well, it just it just blows my mind. This was such an obvious, obvious scam, an obvious Ponzi. And yet you had these people who are considered very sophisticated, um, moving huge amounts of capital and encouraging others to do the same into these into these products. It's absurd. And I can't believe it. I can't believe that like these are the people that are sort of viewed as credible in uh, Tradfi. In yeah, I, it is. It is amazing how um, I do think the entire sort of Tradfi world has been uh, consumed by a bit of cognitive dissonance when it comes to a lot of these products. So they were very anti-Bitcoin, and then, and I don't think in many circumstances they really understood the proposition coming from bitcoin certainly i don't think i did in the earlier days you know again my main concession is that i see it as this last last resort thing but um when 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 it comes to DeFi or anything with blockchain in it that like their their eyes are alight and everyone wants to go all in and i find that very bizarre because i feel like Blockchain especially has become, I mean, this is, we're, we're rehashing well, well-trodden land here, but. You've been here a while now. You've seen this happen. Every cycle, every every single scam comes back out. It rears its ugly head. Yeah, exactly. And I think blockchain buzzword, DeFi block, uh, buzzword, stablecoin buzzword, um, that was somehow very alluring to um, TradFi. Um, and even now, like, <laughs> even though I've just, you know, started the blind spot, I've already got like legions of, legions, like huge amounts of, um, you know, spam already coming, you know, pitching me all sorts of things to do with, N- oh, well, NFTs we should probably touch on at some point. But um, you mean, but you're quite a fan of N- NFTs, aren't you, Josh? Well, I, I sort of ac- accidentally invented them in some ways. Oh, you invented them. Well, in some ways, yeah. I hate to, I mean, okay. So, like, everyone's let's trying to find the inventor of the get NFT. Canceled on the first. <laughs> oh, I, I won't. This is just verifiable. Uh, Bitcoin Uncensored is where a lot of the NFT stuff comes from. Uh, the, the really, there was an early project in the space called uh, Spells of Genesis. Uh, which had cards on the blockchain, uh, you know, much like we do now. But what happened is out of the Bitcoin Uncensored community, which was my show, uh, me and my co-host Chris DeRose, uh, there there came a, a thing called the Rare Pepe. And the Rare Pepe very much grew out of uh, Bitcoin Uncensored and its culture. It was a very much a decentralized sort of project where people were trading uh, these. Josh, can you caveat this? Because my... My readership, stroke listeners, um, yeah. will hear the word Pepe and they'll think, oh, it's that green frog that is a far right, you know, white supremacist yeah. uh, evil hate symbol. What were you yeah, doing been... those evil hate symbols? 
Well, they've been lied to. That's not what it is. And uh, I can I can try to convince them, but that's just the reality. You've you've been lied to by the media. That's not what Rare Pepe was. Rare Pepe is sort of like the Internet's Mickey Mouse, uh, or at least it was regarded as that. And so, you know, sure, you might have Hitler Pepe, but you also have Rare Pepes that are uh, completely innocuous. And it's just so a picture. Pepe was like a neutral uh, thing that got co-opted by both good and bad and and essentially used for you know yeah, so in some ways i mean but like this is the, the the thing is when hillary clinton called the entire right wing deplorables um and so pepe became kind of a meme of the deplorable movement right and yeah. so out of that like a bitcoin uncensored and uh, and my show generally was a completely irreverent uh get in the mud i mean the character i've played in bitcoin is john seth and john seth is supposed to be the most discredible person that you can possibly uh, possibly find. And then somehow every once in a while, truth comes out of his mouth. And like, there's a great, uh, you know, I, I showed you last week, there's an episode of uh, me talking about DeFi uh, with a Bitcoin influencer. And I, uh, I look very discredible and I predict exactly what happens with Terra Luna, which is very common in, in, uh, in the space. But what happens, what happened with NFTs is that, out of the Bitcoin Uncensored group comes these rare Pepe cards. A number of venture capitalists actually saw them. I think um, Union Square Ventures saw the rare Pepes, thought it was just a very funny project. Out of the rare Pepes comes uh, the Crypto Kitties, which was pushed by venture capitalists who had observed the rare Pepe stuff. Out of that comes like all of the crypto uh, punks and the bored apes and everything else. And here we are today. But, With Madonna. Uh, selling with Madonna selling NFTs. So I, I, yeah. I think that I, I'm it's, it's clearly, but for causation, but, but for me, uh, the NFTs don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone else would have invented it surely, but no, that is an amazing, that is an amazing, um, claim to fame. But how many somebody, somebody else would have invented receipts. I mean, it's not, <laughs> I, I, it's not an, I didn't actually invent them. I just, it's a, but for causation as much as I can like, exactly <laughs> but um but yeah that's, that's that's just the reality it's it's uh like nfts are very dumb and we built the, the rare pepe <laughs> movement the rare pepe thing was just to, to make fun of things you could do on blockchain and what one thing you can do is you can have receipts and that's what they that's what these are they're just receipts of and pepe. and that's that's what i find fascinating is that like the art market has now jumped on these and i don't like it's incredible how um naive they are i think in terms of what they think a receipt can do and and they don't seem to have caught up like there is i think a mismatch between where the legal system lies and the the powers of the blockchain and the blockchain can only do so much like it still operates in the in the context of law and um you know conventional systems well it's it's very it's very funny because the the th the object like the, the, there's a lot of learning that everybody's doing and I've told I've told everyone this is the case. This is exactly what they're going to quickly learn. There is Bitcoin, which is this token. Once it's out of, if I steal your Bitcoin, then you can't have it anymore. You know, it's not like if I break into your house cleverly, and I steal all of your MP3s, and uh, I think I'm I've just done something very good. I can walk back to my house and, and listen to them and be like, ah, yeah, Isabella can't listen to her MP3s. But Isabella goes back online and just re-downloads downloads them, you know. Or maybe they're on your computer and you just have this a seems, second. This copy. doesn't seem that, that, that hard to grasp. I mean, it seems no. fairly. But Bitcoin, Bitcoin is unique in that if I take your Bitcoin, you can't, you, you, you don't have it. <laughs> you don't have it anymore. So if it lives on the blockchain, you know, as in it's an actual like, bearer asset then uh, then it can live on the blockchain if it's not a bearer asset it can't well the jpegs can't be bearer assets because everybody can look at them and see them you know if it's an nft of a picture i can go download it and that's the same type of ownership and that's what people are learning is that like if someone if i go and i steal isabella's bored ape and uh i have the token which is the receipt but she is still the rightful owner what do you think the court's going to decide it's yeah. going to still be Isabella's board ape. Yeah, exactly. Which is why I, I, I like the idea that it's equivalent to like owning a signed work of art, like in a, in a series of many 
you know, replicable arts, you own the one that's been actually signed by the artist or whoever legitimately sold it to you. But Josh, we're we're recording this the week of Davos and um <laughs> I want you, <laughs> I've <laughs> I have this theory that Davos or World Economic Forum as it is also known is like the human incarnation of a blockchain um because it's this massive kind of consensus generation machine uh where everybody comes together and the fringes well, do you think do you think uh, this is like the meeting the meeting of the nodes they all get together yeah. in davos and they come to like okay well we're going to come to consensus on some something really stupid that we're all going to say this year exactly that and that's why it's always so <laughs> banal because <laughs> isabel it is you 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 know more about davos than me why is the thing why is the stuff that they say always so dumb because i think it is about pleasing everybody and i think it's always behind the curve because it's a feedback system it's not a it has no vision because the purpose of davos is just processing what every like powerful person out there is thinking and re feeding feeding it back to everybody else and and giving a sort of snapshot of what everyone today it's like a balance sheet it's a snapshot it's the camel, of what... it's the camel with 47 humps designed by committee <laughs> Yeah, kind of. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. like, that's, that's what it feels it's so, like. It's so interesting to me because a lot of the stuff that they do just doesn't play, particularly, I feel like the United States is the proving ground for ideas um, for a number of reasons. But Europe seems a little bit homogenized in their thinking and very willing to accept the dumbest ideas. Like everyone in Europe, I, I think I think the UK or Germany in particular, where they're just kind of like, we're really nice. We don't really want to like argue. Whereas in the United States, we're like, we have guns, you know, so uh, <laughs> we don't we don't like they, they bring their ideas here and we're just like that. That doesn't make any. We don't get that. And uh, and so, like, I feel like a lot of the ideas fall flat here, whereas like in, Ger you know, in Germany or other countries like they're they're they, they seem like a lot of times they're actually taking a little bit of root and they're experimenting with some of the stuff that, you know, a couple of years ago, the, the phrase that they came out of Davos was, was shareholder capitalism. They just everybody was saying that all the time. It was like they came back and every CEO and executive. Wasn't it stakeholder? Oh, that's stakeholder capitalism. Yeah. They just kept saying it. And I was just like, where did yeah. this phrase come from? But every this, single this, CEO this, this is, is exactly saying it. what Davos does. It's 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 about conjuring up norms and, and like pushing norms and do they vote on them? Do like who 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 here thinks that the word of the year is gonna be stakeholder capitalism? Vote? They do yeah. they do have an award ceremony where they give out really? like an award, a crystal award. Um, and they have a lot of mindfulness sessions as well. Look, I think I think how do Davos, we win that? Well, <laughs> I'm actually not how sure. How do we win the crystal know. the davos crystal award i don't know actually <laughs> but it was interesting me? because <laughs> i reckon the crystal award is like winning the the native cryptocurrency of the blockchain that is WEF. like whoever oh, that's wins good. that that's the block you know that's I mean? the block reward yeah because you obviously like whoever that. whoever is worthy of the crystal award is obviously the most consensus person who's going to please it's everybody. like a rich person oscar yeah Do you display that or does that get you killed I don't know. Is that I like don't... The, I'm, the, I'm the biggest asshole statue. <laughs> I really want one. That'd be great. I want. How big is it? I don't know. I, 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 I it's, uh, it's maybe this big. I don't know. I haven't seen one up close, but um, my pyramid. But it is. It is. It, I do find the whole phenomenon fascinating because it's like a cross between Versailles, um, and a sort of out of touch elite <laughs> preaching you know, quite hypocritically what the world should be doing whilst they themselves are not following those um, same recommendations, right? Arriving in their private jets, blah, blah, blah. Um, on the other hand, it's just a party. It's just a big party for lots of people. So it reminds me a little bit of high school as well. And who's the most popular and you're running around, you don't sleep. Everyone's, I don't know how these um, powerful individuals operate at Davos because you go there, you have back-to-back -back meetings the, you the point is that so i was talking about davos and yeah. we lost josh because he was intercepted by daily mail spam that was popping yeah, up yeah. on his desktop <laughs> but i find this quite fascinating because getting into those alerts is the new 
that is the ultimate hack, consciousness hack, isn't it? It's like, because I remember in the first days of lockdown when we were all um, having to work from home and it was all a novelty. And I remember very specifically that suddenly, and I swear to God, I had never, ever been on this website. Suddenly, I started getting all these Epoch Times um, alerts. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And um, I was like, I... Did you I subscribe? Did you subscribe too? No, I don't. That that was oh, the weird oh. thing. It just like hacked me. And um, but then I thought that's like the best sort of pamphleteering hack. If you want to get into somebody's consciousness, just to get into their, get them to click on something that accidentally uploads the um, you know, their this whatever. Do Do you know uh, anything about the Epoch Times? I thought I. Not enough, but I, it's I think it's, it's an incredibly interesting newspaper. Yeah, I think because um, it's Falun Gong, isn't it? Yes, it's like got a very, it's got some kind of association with the Falun Gong, and uh, they've tried very, they're trying very hard to sort of cater to uh, the the right news in America, but I I feel like they're printed in Hong Kong or something like that. It's very mysterious. Um, I did try to get around. Um, and they have that they have that like young white guy, you know, always doing the commercials on YouTube uh, with his wife. And they have a number of really very, I mean, good shows that they they put together. Um, and they've done a very There's good job with a recording. lot of money behind it. Like that's yes. the interesting thing. Who is funding the Epoch Times? And and they've got a lot of good reporting on certain things, but it feels very much Russia Today-ish to me, where you report the news correctly on a bunch of things. And then at some point you sort of like slightly at times you cash in your reputation to like yeah. throw things in. Like I'm seeing that right now with like the Ukraine stuff and like a lot of these people who have like built reputations. Now it's right back to like, you know, Ukraine, like they, 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 they don't like, they don't like the U S helping Ukraine. Um, and they're like burgeoning on, on pro Russia, which is very interesting to me. That they've gone from probably being fairly anti-Russian, anti-Ruski, uh, to like overnight very pro-Russia, and I don't like I don't know where that came from. I don't know how that happened, but it seems in talking to them, it seems like it's all reactionary. And it's like, well, you know, uh, disagreeing with uh, with Democrats or the left has been a hundred percent accurate so far. You know, they'll say stuff like that, and I, I just find that very interesting that that's kind of like the the, the Epoch Times like fits into that discourse. And I don't know whose disinformation and good information the Epoch Times is, but I think that they're very interesting. And also, like I heard, like I, I obviously I, subscribe. I never could prove it, but like around 2020, again, suddenly the actual physical copy of Epoch Times ended up in like being distributed to a load of people I know in London. And again, who paid for that? Like that is I don't you know, know. to distribute um a paper copy and and get it into i'd heard rumors that it got um slipped in as a as a uh insert insert to like yeah. some major papers and that's interesting so obviously they're like you know they either i don't, I don't want to accuse anyone of bad behavior but they're obviously paying people to um get into print runs and and that is fascinating it reminds that it seems quite underground if that makes sense i mean i don't know whether to like them or hate them i my subscriptions on a daily basis i subscribe to first things magazine harper's the new yorker and the epoch times so that's a fairly eclectic assortment and i just i subscribe to them mainly because i'm very interested in this question i i like you have been fascinated by them and i don't know why um yeah but i'm fascinated is, is. by everything they do I um I I do think they're very mysterious and that's what makes me uh, interested in them. But you know what you were saying about Ukraine and Russia. Um, what well, I because uh, we were talking about Davos and just to finish my my Davos spiel. Um, no, no, not at all. <laughs> um, I did I do find it fascinating that in 2021 Putin was speaking at the virtual maybe 2020 yeah 20 January 2021. He gave a full address um, to Davos uh, virtually. Uh, and that's what I mean by like the consensus machine because Klaus Schwab, I think this is where all the kind of great reset conspiracy stuff goes a bit wrong, is 
I think he is more kind of anti-woke in some ways than the woke because he is not pro-cancel culture. Like, imagine if Joe Rogan had done, like, given 45 minutes to Vladimir Putin in January 2021. I don't think he would have gotten away with it. He would have, and 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 he, this is like in the context of a Joe Rogan show where he's actually ask, asking questions. Kash gave Vladimir been, Putin 45 yeah. minutes to, to say whatever he wanted. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Don't you think that's interesting? You know what I think the real conspiracy is? <laughs> I think oh. I think it's interesting that Putin shares hit a name with the only important contribution that Canadians have ever made to society. Oh no. What's that? Poutine. What's that? That's what I'm talking about. It's they're trying to destroy the the the, the food. It's a French fries with a cheese on top. That is actually food. It's it, yeah, it's it's Canadian. It's the only the only thing they've ever done scientifically, as far as I know. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> their only their only chemistry contribution is uh French. And, and 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 here's the thing: you go there, and they're like, "Have you had the poutine? Have you tried the poutine?" You know, because that's how they speak. Um, In Canada. and you're like, I've, I've never had poutine. What is this? And like, it's so good. It's so good. And I'm in the Quebec, you know, uh, it's so good. You have to try it. You know? So you go, you go like, you, you search it out. You're like, I'm going to get some, you know, poutine. I'm going to go try this out. You walk around, you find a place you're like, this is the best poutine. And you walk into the place, you order it. And then it comes out and you're like, this is French fries with cheese on top. And they're like, yes. <laughs> Well, that that was very educational. I I had no idea about poutine. Um, uh huh. Yeah, shares a name with uh, the dictator that we all uh, hate today. Yes. Or no one yes. love, depending on which side you're on, I guess. Well, I think I think we need to do a independent podcast all about that because um, there's so much to say and so little time. Um, but what else is on on your mind? Let's give a little preview of what may be you know in line or to come on on this eclectic series ah. that we're doing well i think a lot of this is going to be uh us bantering and talking and enjoying each other's company and you watching us do that uh but i think also we're going to have some really fun interviews uh i know a number of people that we're going to be able to bring on uh, to talk about things like ukraine i think isabel and i have talked a lot about doing uh, foreign policy pieces, uh, discussions, and getting some high-level people on that, uh, doing crypto discussions, as that's my specialty, uh, doing general finance discussions and finding amazing people to talk about general, a tr trad fi, as uh, Isabel, uh, Isabella calls it. Uh, we'll get people to talk about that. I think we'll have some amazing opportunities there. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe at some point uh, we'll talk about the book that Isabella is writing. Which is what? I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> I was like, okay. aware of that one. But, I, was getting um, really, I was getting people really excited. Oh, yes, yes. It was pretty, yeah. The book. Yeah, the book. The book that I'm writing. Um, no, what I, else, so, yeah, well, I, I mean, think, and also, eclectic. I would like to also, sorry, go on. Oh, cons like, and conspiracies. What? And conspiracies. I think, I think that uh, we both, given, given my uh, tangent to crypto and Isabella's uh, tangent to Polishness. Um, I think that <laughs> I think we both enjoy a healthy dose of conspiracy talks so and maybe a little of that, like the Davos stuff, you know. Well, I I like you know look when it I am interested in in following conspiracies because I think if you don't stay on top of them, they kind of bite you in in the bum uh, unexpectedly because. Um, strange things happen these days with with the internet and if you're not like fully if you're kind of closing close-minded to certain weird corners then you you really do miss out on sort of things that suddenly take like like you know like the donald trump thing at the end of the day like nobody saw that coming mainly because you know we in the media were very tunnel visioned in in a certain direction um and i think a lot of the paranoia's um and the trust issues are related to the conspiracy stuff. So I think it is important to keep an eye on what's going on. And just some of them are just good, funny stories to um, debunk or not debunk. The Great Reset is obviously the big conspiracy 
these days. And as someone who has been to Davos, I do, I kind of laugh at it because I just, I, I, my take on Davos was always that these guys present themselves as being uber powerful. But actually, they're really not. They're very retrospective. They're always getting <laughs> wrong. They ne life never goes as they are predicting. They make these bold assertions, and then you know it. To me, had, do you know what I mean? I, I had a very similar discussion a couple of weeks ago about this. We're like, oh, the Great Reset, and I was like, dude, the World Economic Forum is not a powerful organization. They're just, it's, it's, it's like Klaus in a room and then he puts on a conference every year and then they come together and then they, they like vote on buzzwords and then they go into the world and like mostly go on TV and say these buzzwords. And then people like you and me hear all of the people we watch that like the news views as credible. We watch all of them go on and say these buzzwords. We notice the pattern cause it's not that hard cause they voted on three buzzwords and then we laugh <laughs> And that, <laughs> that to me is what comes out of Davos every like they, they put millions of dollars into Klaus Schwab's pocket um, or whoever gets it. I, I imagine it's him in order to go there and vote on three uh, buzzwords. But also what's interesting is like there is this perception that it's it is elite. Don't get me wrong, but anyone can actually become a member like they're very it's open. It's what? It's, elite it's elitist. It's not elite. It's, it, I would rather yeah. I would I would honestly. I, I think I think that like tra traveling to uh, Bangkok and eating street food at a hard to get to stand is more elite than going to Davos. But like it is definitely but, elitist. But not just that. I think um, like structurally, it's like bit like a blockchain. That's why I say like blockchain for me is You're the best right. because it's opt in. Like anyone, can, if you've got the right, if you've got enough money, if you've got enough server power, whatever, you can go to Davos. There's no, everyone can go in if, if they have the money. Um, and it would be quite funny if some of the conspiracy people just like crowdfunded a, a membership of Davos because then they would become For members. For like one of the Davos. reporters. Huh? For like one of the reporters who really is like desperate, like, because every no, year no, what no, happens... No. You, you like, know what occurs? All of these like conspiracy reporters go and they'll like hang out around Davos and they'll get like, you know, Petraeus doing his morning run. And then they'll run with him and be like, Mr. Petraeus, Mr. Petraeus, what are you discussing at Davos? And he's like, what are you, what are you doing? No, but it would be far funnier man. if like Alex Jones just like did crowdfunding cr yeah. and bought a membership. Because this is what I mean. If Putin can go, I'm pretty sure Alex Jones can go if he bought a ticket. I don't think they would care, but I don't think he wants to because he needs it to be a conspiracy. <laughs> but that's what I, that's, that's the funny thing about it. Like, but it would be quite funny if he bought a ticket and and he had it's just a conference. Had, what? It is it's just, just a, a conference. conference. Yeah, it it's is. like, and that's uh, and he, and that's what that brings us to our first uh, our first sponsor uh, today. We are sponsored by Klaus Schwab and the Davos. <laughs> How much did he pay us for this amazing endorsement of his like non-conspiratorial? Uh, Four million uh, Terra Luna. <laughs> not, not, not four million like you know virgins or something. <laughs> well, I he did give us a lot of virgins, but I uh, embezzled them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, anyway, so I think as a. Um, as a preview of what's to come, this is this is what I think this is a good um, good sort of overview of of our thinking. So I hope, um, Josh, do, is there anything else on your mind? I mean, we, we could get serious just for a second, just to give a little bit of um, additional preview. Is that one one story that caught my eye this week was this story about Sri Lanka, which is oh yes, yeah, it's currently undergoing a massive economic sort of collapse um and i had no idea that the government there had banned organic farming and apparently um according to i have to say and admit it was a daily mail story um but apparently th this led to a 30 percent reduction in in yields in in their rice and tea uh tea farming was i it, think it was. they didn't they didn't ban organic farming they banned like traditional farming didn't they uh, that's it sorry banned non-organic farming that's right 
sorry, I'm being stupid. Um, anyway, so that led to a 30% reduction in yields. And now that has hit their exports and their ability to balance the um, their trade balance. And uh, yeah, and it, it, absolute chaos ensuing. No, no fuel, um, riots potentially on their way, protests. Um, but obviously what listeners may not know, or watchers, readers, whatever, um, is that Josh, you're quite interested in, in this topic of agricultural yields because you, you're a bit of a fan of the um, green revolution. Oh, so yeah. We might, we might touch on this in a more concentrated way in, in a future episode. But what's your what's awesome. your general take on the, the whole organic movement and how it's, you know, how, do, how does it get to a situation where the government can ad- advocate for um, clearly a policy that is going to 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 be self harming. It's not. It's not. It's not clear to. I mean, the, the thing. I think the thing that we do as people, and I think this is true across the world, is we assign to our politicians and elites this belief that they know anything, that they know anything at all, and. Time and again, and I, I think it's actually becoming more true or more obvious as time goes on here, as we have access to information and uh, as we are able to consume primary sources and see for ourselves. These are people who are just like you and me, and they are they have bad advisors and good advisors and they're surrounded by bad circumstances and good circumstances and their decisions, particularly those that are unnuanced and are sort of like dictatorial tend to be wrong. It's not that hard. Like, so, you know, the, in my opinion, the green revolution, the ability to use fertilizers, uh, recombinant DNA, Maybe just tell, like, everything those, else. For those listeners who might not know about the green revolution, can you just quickly tell us what it was? Yeah, so there were just, you know, in um, in the world, millions of people starving every year. And, uh, you know, a guy named Norman Borlaug showed up and basically figured out how to increase wheat yields an enormous percent. And to date, I think, has basically been credited with saving more people uh, over the course of that time. More people have, have survived starvation as a result of his work than any other human on Earth. He's basically responsible for, I don't know, something probably in the low end of like one and a half to two billion people's lives. Yeah. And, and so many people have never even heard of him. No, so yeah, I- that, that, that's, 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 that for me is very interesting is you have this guy, he won the Nobel prize, uh, Nobel peace prize uh, back in what, 78, I think, or whatever it was, something like that. And uh, it's, it's extremely, his work was extremely important. And like, you find out why very quickly when countries take their cues from Western nations that are, trying to virtue signal and 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 show other countries how good they are by like you know moving to organic i buy organic food personally i like it better i uh i don't like it better because it's not got chemicals i like it better because it's probably you know a little healthier i don't know i presume it's better to not have chemicals sprayed on but without those chemicals like there are countries where millions of people if not billions would be dead and uh, we had those chemicals for a very long time. And for the most part, they're good. And organic food costs a lot more. So these things do a few things. And, and actually, this is this is really what you can do is just go to Whole Foods, take a look at the price of organic food, compare it to the price of non-organic food. It's an articulation of the efficiency of the non-organic uh, growing process. And it's just like, what's the food, 30, 40, 50% cheaper? And uh, if you if you implement this in a, in a in a poor nation, what do you think that 30, 40, 50 percent is the result of? Do you think that that is just like like the farmers getting a premium or do you think maybe it actually costs that much to grow because they lose a lot more food? Well, this is the thing. And I I find it quite fascinating that, um, you know, in Sri Lanka, the the. I think there were probably other factors. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm, I'm sure there were other probably factors. Probably a drought year but- or something like that. But by and large, there was apparently this uh, impetus to satisfy Western markets that have more and more demand for organic food. Um, and of course, that might sound um, logical because you're getting a bigger premium uh, or margin on, on, on selling the organic stuff and you're sort of catering to the, to the rich Western dollar. But 
at the same time, if it ends up eating up your capacity to to create, you know, high yield, highly scaled farming systems in your own domestic market, then it's it's not worth chasing that buck because it's self sabotaging. And I think this is what is what Sri Lanka is proving is that this was incredibly badly thought out policy, and um, and now we are going to see the repercussions of it. And of course, in the context of Ukraine now and the um, the huge kind of imposition on on fertilizer markets that the um, the war is is having. Um, there's not enough fertilizer farmers everywhere are going to have to like adjust in a way that is probably going to bring yields down around five percent or more um that now is like the worst time for that sort of um reduction in yields and i just wonder josh do you think i mean i don't know because i'm obviously here in the uk and the whole millennial what i'm calling i'm calling it the millennial fuss dollar because it's it's this kind of assumption that if you if you lead your life to this like very virtuous uh, organic you know I, I agree organic food is great but like this idea that if you know this the entire supply chain has to be you know perfect for you do the do the fuss dollars like at what point are they going to collapse because eventually the the if i ever write a book Miss, mrs fuss dollar is going to be my main character <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Because that's how I see the millennial market. It's like, oh, I can't possibly have milk. I have to have almond and sorry, I, I never pronounce that word properly. Almond. I mean, they they are they're creating incentives in ways like like this is I, I call this from when I was a kid. I called it the Furby the Furby problem. I had a friend who was sitting there at Christmas and he was stroking his Furby, and he said commercials. Don't work. It was a little like toy that would uh, talk. Oh, okay. It was like it looked like a gremlin. And okay. You've never seen a Furby. You got to look at look it up. Look up okay. Furby. And he looked at me. He was stroking his Furby. He was petting it because it was a little little stuffed animal, but it was really not stuffed. It's more like a hard thing. He's petting it. and He looks at me and he says, "Commercials don't work on me." And I was sitting there just like, "You that, that dumb toy is the toy of the year." What do you mean commercial? Like that's that is an example of you following the crowd. Like, what are you talking about? And this is this is the generation where uh, they're drinking their almond milk and they're like, commercials don't work on me, you know? And you're like, how did, what tit did they squeeze to get the milk out of that almond? Like, who who told you that that was what you got to drink? You know, commercials don't work on me. So they're the commercials don't work on me generation. I mean, I'm, I'm among them. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that almond milk is bad or any of this stuff is bad, but it creates really strange demand for things and a lot of this stuff i th i get the sense that what's going on is like the almond growers association of america or something like that was like we can make you know almond milk it's mostly like people drinking like oil but like we can make it and it tastes perfectly good and so they try it they test it and then they're like okay let's get a you know let's get chai at day to like come out and like run a super bowl commercial about how great almond milk is and then the oat industry is like we could do oat milk i guess like that'd be fine and so now we have this like really weird byproduct of like a lot of these uh a lot of these crops where they're you know making milk products and this all comes from when i was a kid they were doing rice milk and soy milk that was really the only choice you had when i was a kid was rice milk or soy milk and those seemed like really gross to me but now we're all drinking almond milk and all of us are drinking, you know, and, and a lot of this stuff is grown in very suboptimal places. I think the huge, uh, a, a huge number of almonds are grown in California in sort of like land and areas that aren't really great, like necessarily the most optimal growing place for them. So it, it creates very strange incentives in the agriculture industry. And to your point about Sri Lanka trying to, you know, go organic to gain, and to take the almighty dollar, uh, I mean, isn't agriculture usually cited as the best example of a perfectly competitive market? I mean, isn't yeah. isn't there really no profit in pursuing yeah. anything other than just like doing the best at growing whatever it is you're growing that year? Isn't that yeah. isn't that the case? Absolutely. And that's how you end up with the cash crop uh, situation. I mean, that's why they're called cash crops. I mean, it's because it is the perfect arbitrage um, in play because almost anyone can be a farmer, right? In theory, not 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 in the EU, of course, not anymore. Uh, by the way, if you haven't watched Jeremy Clarkson's um, documentary on Amazon, I did enjoy that. If you, if you want to have an insight into how farming works in the UK, 
It is very good. Um, anyway, so can we, I think. Can we link to that? Like in the like, uh, well, I guess sure. in the description. Like, I'd, I'd like to watch let's, that. I'd, I'd send, it Marks, uh, send it to me. Send it to me. It is. It is very good. I did want to do my own equivalent uh, show where I start a, a startup and I go through the same motions that he does when he starts a farm, aka being totally clueless about everything. But um, but before we finish, because I think this is you know we've 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 bored our uh, listeners to I think uh, the max already. <laughs> Maybe not. I shouldn't undersell us. Um, what is going on in America with the baby milk shortage? Oh, um, uh, we we disconnected all of the women from the pumps uh, that we had them on. We had farms and farms of women, as you may know. And uh, and last week there was a recall on all the pumps, so we we could no longer milk them. No, no. <laughs> so you're saying you don't know the answer? <laughs> <laughs> no. What what happened is apparently a number of months ago there was a uh, some sort of bacteria alleged at one of the factories, and they shut down that factory. Uh, for a test or for a check, I believe this is my understanding of it. So I, I'm not positive, but I think that basically threw the market off. And the result has been that we are just at a huge baby formula shortage. And it's very funny because really what it does is it just displays, it takes off, takes the, the sheet off of the ghost of consumerism in some ways, and just shows us for the incredible little uh, bitchy humans that we've become where we are completely dependent on technology to feed our babies. Like, it's just, it's really like, not, not that that's like, not that I'm any different, but it's just really interesting. You don't realize which part of your life could fail next week because of, you know, a supply chain problem or a market contained no, right. like that. And it's just, we've built a just in time economy that really is something that, that we've built our lives on in every single way. We don't even know, you know, who, who could have possibly imagined the idea that we would have computer chip shortages, you know, and it's happened many times before you look back at like a Nintendo uh, games, for example, uh, Nintendo had chip shortages back in the nineties and in the eighties. And a lot of this stuff is, you know, the basis for the supply chain today that really caused the supply chain to become robust because we had all of these tests of stupid things like video games. But after the pandemic, we found out that supply chains can fail and they can fail really fast. And that now everything is so tight in that when we have a chip shortage, you can't buy a car for under $255,000. Um, <laughs> that blows my mind. It is insane. Um, thank you. I, um, I couldn't agree more. I was also thinking of a view to a kill. I'm afraid, speaking of shortages. Open it. <laughs> I hey! I'm sorry. Occasional interruption. I've been given a secret code. Maybe this means that makes sense. something. Thank you. It's just, you should okay. share. Uh, <laughs> you should share. <laughs> I get it. Oh. This, this occasionally will happen, yes. I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Where is daddy? Go, go, go. Because I have to sign off now. Okay. Okay. What is that? Actually, that Leah, is... Do you want to say goodbye? See, goodbye? Okay. We'll say goodbye now. Do you want to say goodbye? Bye, Duga. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes, you do. <laughs> I'm sorry about bye, this. Bye bye. Bye bye, Duga. <laughs>